Thank you, Rob. One of the most powerful passages in all of Scripture. Let's begin a prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be together this morning and our purpose for coming together to worship you and to hear your word read. Father, we commit ourselves to you this morning again, and we seek to have a clearer picture of who you are and what you have done for us. Father, we thank you for this uh, heavy, dense passage that Rob just read. Father, help us not to get lost in the density. Help us not to get lost in the, uh, the confusion. But let's see it for what it is, for what you have done, and what you have done for us, and the sacrifice you made. Father, renew us this morning. Restore our vision of you this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, for some reason, uh, Western, Western Christians, we really like, especially when it comes to spiritual themes, theology, things like that, we really like everything to be succinct and in a, in a, in a clear definition. Uh, if it fits on a bumper sticker, even better. You know, we, we like it really short and really, really together. To, we just kind of have to take these abstract thoughts and just kind of nail it down. But the problem with that is that when we do that, it, it loses its power. It loses its mystery in a lot of ways. And it doesn't really capture all the, in, all the ins and outs. It doesn't capture the mystery. It doesn't capture the power of what the idea is. Uh, one example of that would be uh, the atonement. Uh, the Bible never really explains exactly what the mechanism happens in, in, uh, in, in Christ on the cross. And so we've had to come up with all these theories. And sometimes the theories compete with each other. And we think, well, this is the th right theory. No, this is the right theory. When in fact, the Bible includes them all. And, uh, we, but, it, but trying to define it, we kind of lose what the atonement, what the crucifixion is all about. And another phrase about that is the kingdom of God that we really don't know what all is entitled with the kingdom of God, and we, so we try to kind of bring it down to a definition. We try to, try to look at it, and the, thing, the problem is a lot of Western Christians don't even know or haven't heard the gospel of the kingdom. We've heard the gospel of salvation, but never really heard the gospel of the kingdom. But when you look at the New Testament or you look at the, the early church, those two were never separated. They were all the same thing. Uh, the kingdom of God is probably the dominant theme that runs through the Old Testament. It is the dominant theme that runs through Isaiah. It is the dominant theme of Jesus' teaching is the kingdom of God. And yet we're not, not really sure what all that entails and what all that means and how, does that, and how all this works. And if you talk to, to a lot of Christians, you know, they'll, you, we get the idea that it's kind of, they kind of fall into two categories. One is that the idea that the kingdom of God is just a bunch of principles. And it's very individualistic. That if I follow kingdom principles, then my life will be a success. That if, I, uh, if the preacher tells me to give, well then uh, I will give. That's a kingdom principle. And I will get back a lot more than I ever gave and more than I need. Or if, uh, if you follow these kingdom principles in your business, you will have a successful business. Or if you follow these kingdom principles in your marriage, you will have a dynamic marriage experience. If you follow these kingdom principles of raising your kids, they'll all grow up to be uh, just exactly what you want them to be, these strong, fine Christian adults. And we ought to look at ourselves and know that ain't true. But 
But we look at this and we think these principles will, will follow. And, I hear, and I've heard several times of people saying, you know, that, that um, if I just save myself sexually for marriage, then once I get married, I will have this mind-blowing sex all the time. And it's all about individualism. If I follow these kingdom principles in every single area, I will have success, everything. And these are not bad principles, but they're just not guarantees either. It's not, the, it's not just about me being successful in my life. I mean, the preacher on TV may tell you to give, give, give to his ministry, and what usually happens is the person sitting in their living room still remains poor while the preacher on TV buys a new private jet. That's just not how, well, what it comes down to is basically manipulating God or trying to manipulate God. That if I do certain things, push the right buttons, then God is obligated to do this. That's how some people think of the kingdom of God. It is these kingdom principles. Another way people think about it normally is just that it's something we are waiting for in the future. That I will inherit it when I die. And that's when I will come into the kingdom. Or maybe we're just waiting for Jesus to come back and start the millennial kingdom, the thousand year reign, and that's the kingdom of God too. And when we do that and we try to, and these are all good things, but we've just robbed it of its power and robbed it of its ministry. The kingdom of God is literally about power. And that's what Isaiah has been talking about all this time. From the very beginning, when we looked at uh, this big poem, verses, chapters 40 to 55, it is all about the power of God who is going to establish himself as king, to establish his rule on the planet. And he talks about the strong arm of God with power. And so these four servant songs that we've been looking at the last four weeks have to deal with this. And, it, and, and we've talked about how, how Isaiah kind of takes it and he sort of uses a zoom lens. He kind of has this wide picture of it. And we see him in chapter 42 where you have this character. And we can't decide if it's Israel is the servant or is there a person that's a servant. We're not really sure. And, uh, but it's this royal picture, this royal picture of, of the servant, of Yahweh's servant. And it's going to be great. And he is, it's, it's just, it's wonderful. But then we go into chapter 42 and we see a little bit different. It looks like it's a person. It's still Israel, but it's a person, maybe the representative of Israel. And, uh, but this person is also, uh, talks about establishing the rule and the power. And, and, uh, but he's kind of not sure whether all this work that he's going to be doing, this task that he has ahead of him, is going to be in vain or not. Is it going to be enough? And then we saw chapter 53, and we get a little bit better, clearer picture, a little sharpen the focus a little bit of this man who, or this, this person who's been beaten and smitten, and he's walking in the dark, and yet he says his face is like a flint of stone. It is, he is, he is, he is uh, zoomed in on his task. And now we get to chapter 53. And if you were the first, if you were just reading this or hearing this for the very first time, if you were a Jew sitting around listening to this and you're waiting for God to, to restore the kingdom, you're waiting for God to, to save Israel, and you hear chapter 50, 53, it would be shocking. But we have heard this enough that we've kind of lost the shock value. We kind of hear it go, yeah, 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 that's a famous passage. But imagine what this is like if you're waiting for God to restore Israel, you're waiting for God to establish the kingdom, and you hear a chapter like Rob just read, and you would just be shocked. This can't be. This can't be right. I mean, it's got all this, this, this heaviness about him, and it doesn't sound like the strong arm of Yahweh. 
But that's what we have in chapter 53. Chapter 52, before the, the section before Rob started in there, it starts with this command. Wake up, wake up, he says. Wake up. He's, in other words, he's telling Israel, he's telling the, the Jewish people that because you are so obsessed with the despair, you're so obsessed with being oppressed, he says that the Babylonians are, it's like you're laying face down and the Babylonians are walking on your back and you're so, so incensed about this that you're asleep. And he's saying, wake up, wake up. Restore your vision of who God is. And that's why we meet together every Sunday. Because we need to hear the same thing. We need to keep renewing this vision of God because we forget. And I'm not naive. I'm not saying that we're naive and don't pay attention to the world. But it's so easy to be obsessed with this, with what's going on in the world, that we actually fall asleep and sleep leads us into despair. And he's telling us to wake up, wake up, get get a picture of what God is really like. You need to do this. And not fall asleep. Because he's saying if you're just obsessed and concentrating on what's going on around you, you are dreaming. Or maybe you're in a nightmare. But the point is, you're asleep. And Isaiah is calling us to wake up and get a picture. Get a picture of what this God is like. And this, these things... These things are what we are supposed to see. These things about God. We think the things that are around us are so despairing that we get distracted by that and don't see it. And Christians do this too because we're always looking at the next clue that's going to tell us when Jesus is going to come back. Oh, this is going to come back. This is, Jesus has got to be close by because this is happening, this is happening. Well, God is not dictated by human events, Okay. We wake up and get a renewed vision of God. That's how we get through this life. That's how we get through it. So he says, wake up. And that is clearly the main point. And then he gives us this shocking picture of what this God is like. And the, the sermon, the song, uh, the ser- servant song actually begins in verse 13 of chapter 52. And it begins like we would think it would be. See, my servant shall prosper. He shall be exalted and lifted up. And she'll be very high. And then he describes them like this. Just as there were many who were astonished at him, so marred was his appearance beyond human semblance. And this form is beyond all mortals. And it's like, that's not what I thought exalted would look like. And so right off the bat, he's drawn us in about what God, he's going to be exalted. And then he says, he's also repulsive. The way this psalm is, the way this servant song is formed, this is one of the reasons why I love the Bible, uh, is it's not, uh, Bill and Monk and I were talking about this earlier, it's not this handbook of rules and regulations handed down to us. It is full of artistry. And Hebrew poetry is absolutely gorgeous. And one of the things that Hebrew poetry does a lot, if I can get this going here, I have to turn it on, right? <laughs> Let's see, it's not something like going and we go to the next one. I don't know, my uh, remote's not working here. Uh, one of the things about Hebrew poetry that's pretty common is that they like to use parallel phrases, and then they come into a middle, and then they back back out. And that's what we have here. And the reason they do that is because they want to emphasize the central point, the fulcrum of the poem. And that's exactly what we have here. 
we have this description of the servant among the nations, among the kings, and we'll look at this in a second. And then he has the servant and the people. Do I need this? This is, this is the trick. Sorry about this. Sorry about that, Christian. So you have, a, you have these parallel passages. It starts out talking about the servant and his relationship with the nations, the kings, the powers, and then this relationship with people. And then you have the center part, the death of the servant. And that's what the, pro, that's what the poet wants us to focus on. And then he backs back out, talking about the people and then talking about the nations again. So the only reason I wanted to do that is I just wanted to show you this is where we're focusing in on verses 4 through 6. In fact, I would say Isaiah 53, 4 through 6, could be the fulcrum of the entire scriptures. That this is where it all hangs together in these three, in these three verses. So the shocking picture of Yahweh's return to glory. In these first two verses, we see, he see that he's exalted, but then he says he's repulsive. That we can't even look at him. The people don't even want to look at him. And it, that we just can't even see it. And he it said it's so shocking that kings shut their mouths. And I think the reason they shut their mouths is they're going, you know, they mean there's another way to do power? This is the truth we haven't heard before. Because how do kings exercise their authority? Usually through fear, power, violence. That's how they exercise power. But this one is different. And their mouths are shut. They are struck silent. We've never seen power run like this before. We didn't know this was even possible. And in the next section, we see that he is powerful yet wounded. He is powerful and yet wounded. That there are new ways to, to unveil his glory. And this glory looks like forgiveness of all things. He says he, he's, he's like a weed just kind of growing up. Very just normal kind of person growing up in the, in the, in the ground. And then he says he's unattractive. He's unattractive in his appearance and he's unattractive in his upbringing. There's nothing spectacular about him. Just very, very common. And, he, he, and then he is, he is wounded. Wounded in spite of his power. And the author kind of uses this sort of composite picture of Israel all the way from Egypt to Assyria to Babylonia. And now we can read it through Rome that they were just oppressed and defeated. And he's taken all these images, all these biblical images of Israel and kind of put it on this one person, the servant of Yahweh. And he has this unexpected payment. In verses 4 through 6, this is the center of the poem. And I'm going to go ahead and read those verses again. Surely he was born, he has borne our infirmities, and he carried our diseases. Yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole. And by his bruises we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The full weight, the full weight of our transgressions, our guilt, our iniquity, our, our, our resentments, Everything is laid down on his shoulders. And of course, if we look through the New Testament, we see this is exactly 
the message that Paul preached in 1 Corinthians 15. This is the message that the, the four Gospels preach, that this is what happened, exactly what happened. That this servant that we now know as Jesus the Messiah was executed outside the gates of his own city by an occupying force, by an empire. And it was all because of our transgressions. And so we have this servant of Yahweh climaxing here in this section where we see where he was royal and now he's with disgraced. And in chapter 40, you know, remember he talks about comfort, comfort my people. Well, this is how he does it. He comforts us through forgiveness, through freeing us from sin. We have this royal character, now full of shame. We have this person who was dignified and now disgraced. And this, he says it was the exact payment that God required. And what that means is that Israel, us, and humanity, we didn't pay the payment. The servant paid the payment. And it was exactly what was required. That he put it together, this love and power came together in this one person for this global promise of making a people of God that stretched around the world. All because he took the weight on his shoulder. Amen. We see this in the, in the previous Psalms in, ch in chapter 42 where he had this, what, the, end, the end of the song, he says he was full of power. The arm was bare, full of power. And he was like a shepherd who carried the lamb next to his chest, next to his heart. So you have this power and gentleness juxtaposition together in this one person. And then you put that next to John chapter 10 where you have Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. And I've taken the weight of all this on myself. And so the question that, that, that the readers are asking now is, is this the arm of Yahweh? Is this the power of Yahweh? Is this that strong arm that they were talking about? Is this what it looks like? And you can tell why that's so shocking. Because this does not look like power. This looks like weakness. This looks like defeat. And yet, it is the power of love and forgiveness for people, for his people. You go on and we see that he is innocent yet condemned. That the people said that this was, that he was pointed, he was, he was counted with the transgressors and he was totally innocent and yet he was condemned. This is a total miscarriage of justice. And he took all the injustice and absorbed it on himself. And he was name, numbered with the wicked, he was numbered with the transgressors, total injustice, and yet, and yet, he was crushed and yet he conquered. And the song ends with him being crushed, and yet he is a crushed conqueror. And he says, and the, go, the, the, the psalmist, the, the, the prophet goes on to say he was crushed, but he was vindicated. And he has this picture of a, both a sin offering and a Passover going on here. The lamb that was slaughtered. The lamb that was slaughtered that took the transgressions on himself. And yes, he was crushed, but then it ends with this conquering hero. He was vindicated. He was resurrected. He was the conqueror. He was the winner.
And he goes on to say that this was God's plan all along. This was God's plan all along. And we got we to gotta understand that, that to have this as a, to keep a Trinitarian view of this, that we were talking about Yahweh himself. That Yahweh himself was going to be the victor and he becomes the servant. And the power of the idols was broken. The power of the kingdoms was broken. And he says he justified many. And then you get into verse 11. And it says, Out of his anguish he shall see light. He shall find satisfaction through his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous, and he shall bear the iniquities. And therefore I will lot him the portion with the great and divide the spoil with the strong. And what he's saying there, it's, verse 11 is very hard to translate, but he finds satisfaction. And I think what he's doing, he wants us to compare that with chapter 49 when, when he says that when the, the, the servant was going, is my task going to work? Is it going to function? Am I going to have success? And Isaiah is saying, yes. He looked at the anguish and he looked at the victory and he said, yes, it was worth it. He looked at the new covenant people that was gathered from all the four corners of the earth and said, yes, the anguish was worth it. The task was completed. The goal was achieved because we have a new covenant people and it was worth it. Not just Israel, but all of humanity. God himself, who is the savior, the redeemer, his faithfulness to the covenant is what saved. His faithfulness to us is what saved. He's the one who rolled up his sleeve and bared his arm, the strength of his arm to establish his kingdom and it comes through being crushed. And yet he was vindicated. So the first section starts off with the kings being silent because they'd never seen this before. And it ends with him over the kings, with him being the conqueror, with him being the king, the ruler. This is how God establishes his kingdom. This is how God becomes king of the earth, through a crushed servant. It is a shocking, shocking picture. He is, de he is dethroned the dominions. He has dethroned the evil all through being crushed, all because of the transgression of bearing the weight, absorbing evil on himself. The question is, is not will you accept Jesus as your Lord because he is, whether you recognize it or not. He is king. He is the ruler whether you recognize it or not. That's not the question. The question is, will you recognize him as Lord? It's not, the kingdom of God are not just principles. The kingdom of God is not just something we wait in the future. It is something that has been inaugurated with the cross. Inaugurated with the cross and the resurrection. So the question is, the age-old question is, is uh, okay, God's inaugurated his kingdom. Why do we still see the world in such a shape? If God is so good, why hasn't he changed everything? Why do we still see genocide? Why do we still see abuse? Why do we still see brutal wars or unspeakable suffering? Or why do we see unfair imprisonment or uh, the death of a species and a death of a civilization? Why do we see the, the tragic lives of addicts and their codependence? Why are we still seeing this? And for years and years and years, I have run to the defense of God, trying to defend him in spite of all the evil that goes on in the world. And I realize now that God doesn't need my defense. 
He doesn't need me to defend him. The question is not, is God loving and sustaining the world? The question is, how is God loving and sustaining the world? He is loving and sustaining the world. The question is how. So just to wrap up this morning, I want to just mention, I think, five truths, five observations here of how does this work today. First of all, the servant is not a distant observer of human suffering. He is in human suffering with us and for us. And this is amazing that God, God is with us in this, in this suffering. His broken body is the liberation for us. He has converted his weakness into strength. And if we could just grasp this picture, not define it in a bumper sticker, not define it in some theological terms, but if we could just grasp this picture that this is the God of the creator of the universe who is entering our suffering with us and for us, that he is in solidarity with us. If I could just grasp this picture and have this vision of this is what God is like without all the abstract theological jargon, then maybe I would stop complaining long enough to sit stunned and silent and awake. I can sit here and tell you, you need to love Jesus. But nobody's going to love Jesus because I tell them to. But if we can capture this vision of the suffering God, of the crucified God, what kind of God does this? No other God does this. No other God of history and the greed and the, and the bloodthirsty gods of history, they don't do this. What God does is, and if we can capture this picture, then we will fall in love with him. And his wounds are a source of this healing power. This is how he heals. I don't know exactly how it works, but I know that if we trust the crucified and resurrected Savior, then that is enough. And I've known a few people, I've known a few people who have literally gone through hell on this earth. And yet, just the little bit of the trust of the crucified God, they have been able to keep their head above water. And no amount of clever arguments that I give or you give or anybody else gives about the existence of God or about whether the resurrection was real or not, it's, it's going to be almost futile to do that. But once a person meets the crucified God, then everything changes. Everything changes. The, perp, the, the picture, it changes. And I've known these peaceful people who love God because they have walked with the crucified Savior. They have walked with the crucified God. Somehow out of his wounds, out of his wounds comes the healing power of care and compassion and forgiveness. Number three, the servant's only competition is with death, sin, and evil. That's the only battle he wants to win. He's not in competition with a bunch of other religions on the earth. Doesn't matter. The battle he's concerned about is the battle against death, sin, and evil. That's the one he wants to win. And it's so different, so different from all the greedy other gods and idols that we see in the world. And number four, the servant fuses together kingdom of God and the cross. We kind of want to separate those two, kind of think that they're totally different, that we can't put them together. 
but they must go together. And that has been the theme throughout the scriptures. And when we get to the New Testament, it's the theme here. John was very, very clear. He said, when, when the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw people to himself. John is, John is the great companion. I mentioned this before. John is the great companion to read with Isaiah. And he's very clear on this. And Jesus was just trying to explain this to the disciples the whole ministry. He kept saying, the Son of Man has to suffer. And Peter said, no, that's not going to happen. And he said, no, that's the temptation of the evil one. And in the road to Emmaus, when he found the disciples, he had to explain. They, they were just distraught because the one they thought was going to be the Messiah ended up dead on a cross. And Jesus comes along and says, no, he had to explain to them, this is how it had to happen. And I'm sure that he turned to Isaiah chapter 53 to show them this. This is how it had to happen. You have to fuse them together. The cross and the kingdom of God go together. And finally, the servant's sacrifice and victory is both our redemption and our template. It is what frees us. It is what saves us. It is what rescues us. It is what redeems us. When he took the full weight of our transgressions on him, it is our redemption, but it is also our template. And what I mean by that is we, he is the pattern that we are to follow. This is the pattern. We, Jesus said we had to take up our cross. And a lot of people think with well, cross is just various things. Some people say it's, you know, well, it's, I know I've got a really obnoxious personality, but that's my cross to bear. Well, that's not a cross, that's a crime, okay? <laughs> or it may be my illness or whatever, maybe my cross. A cross is something voluntary you pick up. And Sue and I were talking about this last night, that, that Western Christians, we just don't really think, we think faith should be an easy road, and we don't want anything to make us feel uncomfortable about Christianity. Well, we follow Jesus, and it's going to get uncomfortable. Amen. It's going to take sacrifice. He is our template. We follow him. One other observation about this, these servant songs, it seems that, that Isaiah has exhausted his dictionary of of synonyms for sin and transgressions. He used them all. In iniquities, transgressions, sin, whatever he could think of. It's almost as if whatever is wrong with human beings has been laid on Jesus, has been laid on him. Amen. Whatever is wrong with us, he has taken on. He has absorbed it. It has exhausted its power, and he has been vindicated by the resurrection. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of power, and we're going to look at that next week. We're going to look at the rest of the Isaiah, this, this section of the poem and look at what the power is all about. It is powerful. It's so powerful and so shocking and so different that kings are struck silent. They don't know how to handle it. Probably um, one, of the, the most, one of the hardest uh, counseling sessions I've ever been in uh, was years and years ago. And I was young and inexperienced uh, when I was on staff at First Methodist in Irving, Texas. And uh, a mom had come in and asked if, when my church, and asked if I would talk to this, her daughter. And uh, she was running through some problems. She didn't explain. And then I said, sure. So she came in. She's probably mid-20s, late-20s maybe. Beautiful, beautiful young woman. Long, dark hair, you know. And uh, she started... Uh, explain her situation and she was involved in a um, abusive relationship with a boyfriend 
who was also a drug dealer and was telling me her story about this. And I looked on her arms and she had obviously hurt herself, cut herself on her arms, maybe committing suicide, I don't know, but there were scars on her arm where she had cut herself. And, um, and I said, why don't you just get out of this? I mean, can't you just you know, leave the situation? In my mind, you know, I was probably two years older than her, maybe, you know, so I was full of wisdom. I said, why don't you just get out of it? I said, how come you don't leave him? And uh, she goes, because I don't deserve any better. And I think she didn't know that grace and forgiveness was available to her. She didn't know she was taken away by the people closest to her, wanted the best for her, and she was uh, taken away by the voices in her head that said she wasn't good enough or that she didn't deserve it or that she was ugly or that she was repulsive or that, that um, she was not worth it, that God could not wrap her, his arms around her, that healing could not be hers for some reason. And I wish I had 30 years of experience when I sat in that office because I didn't know what to say. But I can tell you that that decision is not hers. That decision to love her belongs to God and God alone. That is his decision. That is a sovereignty that we have no right to. He decides, and he has decided that she is worthy, that she is worth it. He has decided that she belongs to him and that those voices can't challenge that. Those voices can't revoke that decision to love her and forgive her. Those voices can't revoke the, the decision by God to take her iniquity on her. Those voices cannot, and those others, those addictions and whatever else is going in her head, those voices cannot take that away from her. And she left not knowing. I didn't have the words to tell her. I didn't have the experience to show her because I know now from experience and the scriptures that that's true. And I don't know um, what you're struggling with in your own soul. I don't know what guilt or shame or regrets that are weighing on you. Uh, I cannot know that. I don't know what doubts are keeping you from, from God's forgiveness and, and God's love. Uh, but I do know the gift of God's love and God's forgiveness is for, your, is for you today and tomorrow. I cannot know what's going on in your soul. I mean, we're as much of a mystery to our own selves as we are to other people. But I do know from experience, and I do know from the picture that Isaiah 53 draws for me, that the gift of love and forgiveness and healing and joy is available to you right now, tomorrow, and next week. You don't get to decide whether God can love you or not. It's already been decided. That's a, sovereignty, that's a sovereign issue that's out of your hands. And he has decided that he wants to give you love and forgiveness and joy and healing. And I think what better way to, what more better Sunday to have communion than after this passage. And we're going to celebrate communion uh, this morning. And uh, so I'm going <clears> to, 
I'm going to ask, this is what communion is all about. I'm going to ask the, some of the ushers, if they're available, to come and go ahead and, and pass out the elements to us. And um, then we'll read some passages and pray. To me, if there's anything that can take away this abstract idea, this abstract view of the kingdom, this abstract view of forgiveness, and this abstract view of our salvation that we may have theological words for, if there's any way that can bring this down to the concrete level, it's this passage. This passage tells us that this is, this is not just using poetic language. I don't think you can be more concrete than this passage. I don't think you could be more flesh and blood than this passage. This has happened with a real body. And when Jesus said, this is my body, he said, take and eat, and not take and think. He did not say, take my body, take this bread, and theologize. He said, take it and ingest it. Make it be a part of you. Bring it in to your body. For um, 1,500 years, or nearly 2,000 years, really, this has been the center of Christian worship. And I really am afraid that in the West, sometimes we're losing that. We're losing that communion is the center of Christian worship. You, you, we like to think that it's maybe just some symbolic action that we do because we've always done it, but it is real, it is physical, and I think it's physical for a reason that Jesus wants us to take it in. Thank you. Thank you, Mara. So we can't afford to gut this. We can't afford to rob communion of its power. When we read the words, this is my body, we need to read it carefully. And we need to understand that God became a person in a body. And that body was crushed, it was beaten, it was pierced, it was killed, and it was risen from the dead. It was a real body with material flesh and blood. St. John of Damascus, he was a 7th century church uh, leader, he says, I do not worship matter, I worship the creator of matter, who became matter for my sake, who willed to take his abode in matter, who worked out my sal salvation through matter, never will I cease honoring the matter which wrought my salvation, I honor it, but it is not God. And that's what we do with, commun with communion, it is physical It represents his body and his blood. Well, there's my passages. I'm going to read the passage from Luke. <clears throat> uh, just before that, let me refresh us with uh, Isaiah 46. God says, I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. That's what we celebrate with communion. Let me read the passage from Luke, and then we'll pray and take the, take the bread together. 
Now when the hour came, Jesus took his place at the table, and the apostles joined him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes in its full. And then he took the bread, and he, after giving thanks, he broke it and gave it to him, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you for sustaining us and loving us. And we take this bread as a symbol of your body that sustains us and loves us. And we take it into our body. And we thank you for suffering with us and for us. And it's in the name of the Savior we pray. Amen. Let's take the bread. The cup symbolizes the blood of Christ and the blood of the new covenant, which has to do with the forgiveness of sins, which has to do with our restoration into the covenant people. And so when we take the, we take, I kind of see the body as, the bread as sort of sustaining us, and I kind of see the blood as the symbol of forgiveness, the, the symbol that, um, that, that cleanses us. So I'm going to um, pray for forgiveness for all of us this morning, and then we'll take the cup together. God of grace, we thank you that when we were lost, you found us. When we were ashamed, you forgave us. And you have taken all of our transgressions and you have nailed them to the cross. You have taken them on your body. And so for that, we receive your forgiveness now. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after they had eaten, saying, this is the cup poured out for you. This is the covenant in my blood. Let's drink the cup in remembrance of the blood of Christ poured out for you. I'm going to ask you guys to come on up. And I'm going to, let's just close in prayer, and then Kendra and the worship team will be leading us in a closing song. Father, thank you for your beautiful multicultural, intergenerational family gathering today in so many parts around the world. We ask that you revive us and you sanctify us. Make us a house of prayer for all nations. Set our heart on fire again with the good news of your kingdom. We dedicate this coming week to you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father, for loving us with all your heart. Inspire us this week to love you with all of ours. Thank you, Jesus, for your faithful and sacrificial friendship. Help us this week to be a faithful and sacrificial friend like you. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for listening to my, our many thoughts, our words, and our dreams. We ask you to still our souls this week as we listen to you more carefully. In the name of Jesus, amen.